All right, so we are in the book of Judges, and uh, I got to be honest with you, it's not a book that up until this series I spent a whole lot of time in, verse by verse. It's one that I've read. Uh, when we talked about this a few weeks ago, introing it, I, I brought up that I went to Bible college, but never once was there a class offered on just this book, even though there was a class offered on things like uh, Acts, New Testament history, or John. There's a lot of New Testament ones, but there wasn't one offered on just the book of Judges. Today's passage, as we read through it, is what I call, it's a passage that I would call a youth pastor's dream. And you'll see why when we get into it. When I was a youth pastor, I used this passage several times to prove to kids that there was awesome stuff in the Bible, that if they read it, uh, they would see these awesome stories, the awesome narratives, and today is one of those. And uh, I remember saying at the beginning of the series that Judges is chock full of moments that when we look at it, we can see sort of the best of humanity. We can see the worst of humanity. We see God deliver them out of circumstances in ways that just make us shake our heads and say, I have no idea why it went down that way or why God chose to do it that way. And today is we're going to meet the, some of our first judges out of this passage. We're going to meet some of the first ones. And as we get a closer look to these guys and the major moments in their lives, there's going to be these moments where it's just like, I can't believe that's in the Bible. And today, lucky you, it's in there. It's there today. So last week, Adam LaRue was speaking to us. And what we saw in that passage was the second introduction to the book. The book of Judges, for some reason, in its, in its literary style, was given to us with two introductions. And the second one is what Adam covered last week. And in that passage, what we saw was this tension between God's holy commands and God's faithful promises. There's just this tension between God's requirements for his people and God's, God's redemption for his people. So there's always this, this tension that exists there. He has made faithful promises to his people, but he's also held a high standard for his people. And today, like I said earlier, we're going to meet some of our first judges. We're going to meet three of them, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. Those are great names, right? You just don't see those popping up on the popular names list these days. Uh, so if you're, if you're out here and you haven't had any children yet, write those ones down and keep them in mind. Your parents won't mind a bit when you tell them that their new grandson's name is Othniel. <clears throat> so... Just to give you a little bit of background here, uh, to catch us all up to the same speed again, the Israelites got rescued out of Egypt. Uh, then, after they get rescued out of Egypt, they are led by Moses. Moses dies at the top of a mountain looking out over the promised land. Now they're led by Joshua. Joshua takes them on these, on these amazing uh wars and victories to claim the promised land. Now they're living in the promised land. They split up into 12 tribes, and those 12 tribes are now going to be led by 12 judges. They're not going to be led by just one man. It's a whole shift of culture for them as they experience this new way of doing life. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it up to Judges chapter 3. It's on page 138 if you're using the Bible in front of you. Uh, we're going to read it. We're going to start at verse 7 of chapter 3. We're going to read the rest of the chapter, and then we're going to talk through it. So uh, I want to take the opportunity to read it together while we're here, so you can follow along, and, uh, and if I mispronounce the names, maybe you won't even know. But, uh, but there are, I, I want to make sure that we're all seeing this together. 
So let's read this, uh, starting at verse 7, chapter 3 of Judges. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. and He sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishtham, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishtham eight years. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishtham, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishtham. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Listen, I just want to give a little side note. If I was the author of Judges, I would have only used that dude's name once. I would have just referred to him as him after that. But starting again at verse 12 here. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because he had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. This is the part of the story as a youth pastor I just absolutely loved. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in over the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Yep, here we go. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. And when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Now, 
Before we get rolling here, there's one verse in here that just sort of blows my mind. We only have one verse here, and it's the last verse in this chapter. The last verse in this chapter talks about one of the judges whose name was Shamgar. And it says, after Ehud, Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad, he also saved Israel. I read that verse and I think, I want to know more about that dude. Like, you gave me one sentence and then there's no mention of him anywhere else. But I think what stands out to me, before we tear apart the rest of this chapter, the thing that stands out to me about this man is that look at what God can do through a man who trusts God and has a stick. You realize an ox goat is just a sharpened stick. Sometimes they would put uh, a metal end on the end of it or a hook on the end of it, but it always had a sharp point. It's called an ox goad because you would use it to poke the ox if it started to slow down and it's plowing, or if it started to do something wrong, you would just give it a little poke. So it was just a sharpened stick. And he mowed down 600 Philistines. Now, mind you, one Philistine that you might remember, his name is Goliath. The Philistines weren't tiny dudes. And yet, this guy took down 600 of them with a stick. And God saved Israel through him. So before we just skirt over that, because we're not going to really talk about him much, I just wanted us to see what God can do through a faithful man, through a man that believes God, a man who is willing to trust God, a person who is willing to go into the trenches for God's name, and all he has is his faith and a stick. It's going to match up well with what we learn about these other two guys. I want you to notice how this chapter gets started. Chapter uh, 3, verse 7, this section that we're going to look at, how it gets started. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Remember that tension we started off talking about? The Israelites don't handle that tension well. Now, excuse me. What's, what is called evil here is twofold. It's, it's got a twofold meaning. When it says that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, what that means is two, there's two meanings here. One, what they did was that uh, they forgot him. They forgot him and they worshiped false gods. So they, when it says that they, they did evil, it, it goes on to say the two things that they did that were evil in that same verse, verse 7. People of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What did they do? They forgot the Lord their God. They forgot Him. And then they worshipped these false gods. Now, in the Bible... You see this reoccurring theme if you read through it on remembering and forgetting. You know, you might hear a, th- a prayer from David that says, uh, remember me, Lord. If you see the thief on the cross, he says, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. And you might hear someone pray, remember not my transgressions or remember not my sins. Forget uh, my, blot my out my transgressions, those kinds of things. It's this remembering and forgetting. And they do have a significance here. That word forget has a significance. One way that we look at that and see that in Scripture is whenever uh, these, the characters in the Bible or even us through our prayers were saying, remember what you said, remember what you promised, remember what you did. And that's not, even at times we even hear Jesus say that back to his father. It's not because that he thinks or anyone thinks that God's going to forget. 
or that God's not going, oh, yeah, that's right, I did make that promise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not how this is meant to be. What that prayer means is act according to your character, God. If you remember the series we went through before this, we talked about attributes of God, and we talked about how they, that he, when he gives us something, he gives us his best because anything outside of that is outside the bounds of who he is. It's outside of his character. So to say that they forgot God means that they weren't controlled by what they knew was true. In that moment, they knew what was true. They were no longer controlled by it. Even though they knew God and they knew his commands, they weren't real to them in that moment anymore. Time had passed. Circumstances had changed. Scenery had changed. The main players involved had changed. I don't know exactly all the pieces, the intricate pieces that got us between verse 6 and verse 7 in chapter 3. But what we do know is in that time, there was enough stuff going on in their lives that they just stopped living out of what they knew was true. It sounds kind of like us, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but I can speak for myself. It sounds like me. It sounds like me. I, I go through these waves where I'm living on the high of being close and intimate with God. And then when things aren't tough anymore or the circumstances change or the players change or whatever happens, and I'm no longer living out of what I know is true. I'm living out of uh, a promise that was given to me and I still want to reap the benefits of that promise. I still want to live out what I'm going to get because a God, a holy God promised me things. And I believe it, but I'm not going to live out of that. Tim Keller calls it an intellectual acknowledgement. But then our hearts are kind of like a, a frozen lake. This drives my mom crazy, but on PBS, there's a special that comes on several times a year, and it's called Alone in the Wilderness. It's, by, it's about a guy named Dick Prenicky, and every time it's on, we watch it. It's boring to her. It's, it's, it's horrendous. I think my dad actually owns it on DVD now, but uh, it's about this guy who retired and in 1950 moved up to Kodiak, Alaska, and in 1968, decided to, with his own bare hands, using nothing but the tools he had, meaning like an axe and a canoe, he was going to build himself a place to live. And he documents the whole thing with this old video camera. Don't ask my mom. She has all kinds of conspiracy theories about this thing. But this is what's really happened, okay? He was alone in the wilderness, mom. So, anyway, so... The thing that I'm using this as an example for is that he lives there by himself, by himself, and, uh, and every day when the winter came, I mean, there would be snow every night. Sometimes there was snow. He'd shovel a path down to the lake, and every day he'd have to go down to the lake and use his axe and pound a hole into the lake so that he could continually have access to clean water. If he let that hole freeze over just one day, he wouldn't be able to get to the water anymore, and he'd be out of water. And he wouldn't be able to get to where the water was because the lake was frozen and he couldn't hike as far as he needed to hike. So every day he walked down and he chiseled that lake hole away so that he had access to fresh water throughout the time that the winter was, was in progress. Now the reason I use that as an example isn't just to prove a point to my mom because I still don't think she's convinced. But the reason I bring that up 
is because if he didn't do that every day, the lake would have gotten hard again. And he would have missed out on the life source that he needed. So he was very well aware that for him to stay alive and thrive in the wilderness that he was put in, he needed to go down to the water source every day and chisel through whatever ice had formed over the water. The reason that the Israelites' hearts strayed, the reason that ours stray, is because we let ice form over the waters of our heart, and we just think we're okay. And then all of a sudden, one day, we wake up extremely thirsty, and the ice is too thick for us to chisel through, and we do what the Israelites do. Rescue me, God! Save me from this calamity! Save me from this mess! Every day, we need to go back to God. Every minute, we need to depend on Him. Because if not, our brains will know truth that our hearts won't live out. Look at what Peter says in uh, his, his letter, 2 Peter. You want to turn back? I, I'm sorry, I did not write down the, the page number. But 2 Peter... Listen to what he says in verse 5 of chapter 1. <clears throat> he says, for this, reason, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Make sure that you're doing these things. Make sure that you're living out these virtues that God lives out, that God embodies. Make every effort to supplement your faith. Did you catch that? Supplement your faith. You have faith. That's great. With your faith, along with your faith, put into practice a virtue, and with virtue, knowledge, and with knowledge, self-control, and with self-control, steadfastness, and with steadfastness, godliness, and with godliness, brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now listen to what he says after that. Verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective, or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Peter's saying, if the forgiveness and salvation of Christ is real to you, you will live it out in your character and in your life. Then he says, but I'm going to keep reminding you anyway. I'm not going to stop reminding you what this is supposed to look like. Do you remember the first thing Peter did when he was stricken with the Holy Spirit, for lack of better terminology? The first thing he did was something that we hadn't seen him do ever in his life up to that moment. He preached. He walked out into the courtyard, and the people were saying, these people are drunk. They're drunk. They're speaking in different languages. They're... And Peter says, whoa, 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 
Nobody here is drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Do these people have the Holy Spirit? Let me tell you about it. And he goes on for a chapters-long message in the book of Acts that is just powerful. He looks out at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he says, this Jesus who you crucified was both the Son of God and the sending one of the Holy Spirit. He was the embodiment of the power of God. So the first thing that Peter does is he starts off a message of hope, a message of truth to the people that desperately need to hear it. Even the people who were speaking in their own foreign languages, in their own home tongues at the beginning of Pentecost, and they had the Holy Spirit indwelling them, do you know who they, where they were when Peter was preaching? Listening to him preach. He wasn't just preaching to people who didn't believe Jesus. He was preaching to people who had already been stricken and dwelled with the Holy Spirit. Why? What's the point of that? Well, it's because of this. It's because that if we don't supplement our faith with the attributes of God, if we don't supplement our faith with living out in our character, the inner man, and in our lives, the outer man, if we don't get reminded of that often, we are very prone to forget. Now, I know people who don't forget anything. But I know people like myself who forget everything except for stuff that doesn't matter that I remember. I can quote a movie I saw once whenever I was like 11. But I can't remember to take the trash out when the garbage is sitting in the middle of the kitchen floor. My brain is fickle, and so is yours. They function differently, but they're all fickle. And what Peter's saying here in this passage is he's backing up the evidence that supports in this passage from the people of Israel in the book of Judges, in the time of the Judges, in the, under the oversight of Othniel and as their judge. He sees, he looks back on history, and he's not specifically addressing this this particular passage, but he looks back over the annals of human history of the people who claimed God as their redeemer, claimed God as their savior, and he saw how quick they were to forget, to not break through the ice to keep the water fresh. And he says, I'm going to keep reminding you of this. We must keep reminding each other of this. Have faith, but supplement your faith with other things. So God gave us symbols. How do we do that? Well, here's some things. These are just three. Communion. You know, Jesus, Jesus washes feet. He shares a meal. And then he does the bread and the cup with the disciples. And he says, he says things like, as I have eaten with you, eat with one another. Continue doing this. As I've washed your feet, go wash one another's feet. He breaks the bread and he, he drinks the wine. All as symbols, remembrances, moments that you can look back on. And in that moment when you're partaking of the bread and the cup and you're washing one another's feet and you're having that, that meal together to remember and symbolize heaven, when you're doing that, you have symbols and it's really hard to practice active rebellion against a holy God when you're really taking in those symbols. The second one is just the word of God. You see, too many times we just read the word to acknowledge the word. 
And what I mean by that is we read it to say that we say we read it or we read it for a couple other reasons. Maybe we read it to support an argument we're trying to win. Maybe we read it because we feel compelled to, like we have to. It's a compulsion for us. Now it's a habit. and Every day we read it. But not just being in the Word for the sake of acknowledging its, its significance, but being in the Word to meditate on it. And let these words become reality and truth to you. Let these words preach to you. Let these words teach you. Let these words be digested by you and then be metabolized by you and then become a part of you. So how do we keep on track with this? How do we not forget? How do we make sure that these that this forgiveness and the salvation of Christ isn't just real to us in our brains, but it becomes active in our heads. It comes active, I mean, in, in, our, in our hearts, in our life, and in our character. Well, we celebrate the symbols together. We read the Word to meditate on it, to know it, to make it come alive to us. We pray those prayers. We want God's Word to become. Jeremiah talks about how the people had to eat the scroll. It was a very active thing. I'm not asking you to be like a goat and eat the pages of your Bible, but if that's what it takes, have at it. We'll get another one for you. The third thing I thought was just meet together, being together. Listen, if you are in a group of people and there's a passage from the Word of God being taught or read through, there's usually at least one person that says out loud or realizes something in that group, like the light bulb comes on, like, wow, I hadn't seen that before. And if just one person in the group says out loud, I never saw that before, guess what everyone in the group now sees? Something that nobody in the group had seen before. Hebrews talks about the not forsaking the gathering together as some are in the habit of doing. One of the things we have to keep remembering is this moment. I think the value that the local church has is enormous or else I wouldn't have committed my life to it. But, man, just being together. Someone asked about the, the game being canceled last night. Was that disappointing? And to be honest with you, I wasn't disappointed. I, I got good food and I was with some great people. Those are two great formulas for a good time. But just the being together, having good conversation with one another under the umbrella that we were all there, at least most of us were there for the same reasons. We just... We love what God has done in our lives. We want to be able to share that with one another. We want to bring people into that conversation. We learn from one another. You see, what this, what this passage points us to is the need for revival. These people were hurting people. The anger of the Lord, verse 8, burned against them. And he sold them into the hand of this evil king in Mesopotamia. For eight years. Eight years. Now that's proof that these Israelites are stubborn people. Maybe, maybe as stubborn as we are. Maybe. But look at verse 9. Eight years of this tyranny. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, what did the Lord do? Did he say, no, uh-uh. I am tired of it. You want, to, you want to have your life? Have it. Is that what God did? Is that his tone? Was that his response? No. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And what did the Lord do? He raised up a deliverer 
for the people. When God's people cried out, he raised up a deliverer for them. And under Othniel, they had 40 years of peace. What they realized, though, is they needed revival. Like I said, verse 7, it focuses in on what the Israelites are doing. The rest of the focus from that point on is what God is doing. Verse 7, it's the Israelites have basically given up. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot him, and they started serving these other idols. Do you realize the only thing that these people contributed to the rescue they received was a cry for help? That's the only thing they brought to the table. These people brought nothing for their deliverance other than a crying out to God. And what did God do? He brought it to them, and it resulted in peace for them for 40 years. Now, this, there's a structure here. They cry out to God, and God responds. It makes two things stand out to me. First, it's that God saved them. In verse 9, it says that God responded. God saved them. There was rescue. There was restoration. There was revival that was needed. And it only, come, it only came when God chose to work through His chosen Redeemer. I don't know how many rebellious factions maybe rose up in those eight years of tyranny. But what I do know is if they existed, they were so insignificant that nobody even wrote them down. All we know is that there was eight years of tyranny. And at the end of those eight years, the Israelites collectively cried out to God for a redeemer. And the only time they could get redeemed is when God's chosen, hand-chosen redeemer was put on the scene. So it proves the point that you cannot force revival. You can't schedule it for a week, bring somebody from out of town, and expect revival to happen in your community. You can't fabricate it. We can't make it. It's not Play-Doh in a box that every once in a while we realize our culture is so bad, we're in need of revival. Time to schedule one. Now, there's a time in our American history where you could probably point to and say that revival in that format was effective. But according to this passage, according to the whole annals of the Israelite experience, nothing happened in the realm of revival until God handpicked a redeemer and sent him. The only thing we can do to bring revival is to cry out to God for him to bring it. The second thing that stands out in this whole structure of crying out to God and God responding, which is a reoccurring theme throughout this whole book, is that it rarely ends with peace. It rarely ends with peace. In this instance, it ends with Othniel dying. He was a good judge. He had high character. He did exactly what God called him to do. He was not afraid. What we do know of him is what I just said. But it had an end point. When he died, so did the peace. So for permanent peace and permanent restoration, God's people need a leader that won't die. The 40 years of peace brought by Othniel point us to, the, to, to be thankful for Jesus. It points us to, to have 
uh, a thankfulness for Jesus' coming and His eternal being. But that's the end of verse 11 in chapter 3, and the cycle is about to continue. So look at this, verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon. Now, I don't want you to picture like God like being a personal trainer to Eglon. Keep it up. Keep it up. Let's go. I want you strong. I want you to beat my people. That's not what this is. The God, God allowed Eglon to become strong because God's people in their disobedience weren't doing anything to hinder his strength. God might, I might look at it and say, God, why did you allow me to gain weight? Right? Because it's totally his fault that I pounded too much food, right? And don't exercise. Right? It's the same concept here. We, we look at it and we want to say that God's the enemy here. God's the villain here. God's the, the vengeful, angry God here. But that's not true of God's character. God required a high standard of his Israelite people, just like he does us, and they did nothing with it. What they did was go to something petty, like a carving of a calf, a piece of wood, a pole, an Asherah pole, and worship that instead of the God of the universe. Because what they felt that thing gave them was, was right here in front of them. They could see it, they could touch it, they could experience it, and that's what they were really looking for. So after 40 years of peace with God, they said, nah, and their hearts forgot, just like before. And God, because of his people not doing what he had called them to do, to live in harmony with one another, to make sure that they protected any evil forces from coming in and overwhelming their people with more idolatry, they stood idly by and let it happen. And in that, Eglon was allowed to become a strong king over Moab. In verse 13, it says that, this is sort of the breaking point, by the way. Verse 13, it says that Eglon came in and he took over the city of Palms. Now, let me tell you why that is so significant and probably so disheartening to the Israelites. The city of Palms' other name is Jericho. Jericho was a symbol of God's provision in the early parts of this conquest. It was the first city that they were able to see God destroy through no military action, just a bunch of people playing trumpets and going for a walk. And now, Eglon has it. He owns the city. He's taken it over. Fast forward to verse 15. After 18 years, 18 this time, of dealing with the tyrannical king and the Moab government taking over their land. The people, verse 15, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. A left-handed man. Actually, if you read into his story a little bit, the, the translation actually says that he was unable to use his right hand. Something was wrong with his right hand, whether it didn't exist or if it was crippled or if it was injured or, or what, but he had some kind of permanent disability to his right hand. I, I think I 
went my whole life just thinking that this guy was left-handed and because he was left-handed, people didn't like him. But they were extra cruel to him and he was extra unexpected in this role because he was crippled and he was left-handed. That's what is so significant to us telling, him telling us that. Now, in our culture, you might say, he was a left-handed man. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant for the cultural element. It's also significant for what he was able to accomplish. We'll get into that in a second here. The society that Ehud lived in was extremely cruel, especially to people with disabilities. There was no special programs for them. There was no mercy, grace, or empathy shown to them. If you had a disability, you had no value to society, and you could either beg, borrow, or steal, or just go outside of the city and live out your days. So for this guy to raise to the surface of a position of power like this was unheard of. And so the story unfolds. He's left-handed. So any time that they would have checked for a weapon in the presence of the king, they would have checked for one that a right-handed person could have easy access to. So he forms his own knife, a knife that was big enough to do the job he needed to get done but small enough to conceal on his thigh, on his right thigh, because he knew they wouldn't check it. Because he's left-handed and he gets audience to the king, the king is not threatened by him in the slightest because what's a cripple going to do to me? So when Ehud asks for audience in private with the king, the king gladly gives it to him in his cooling chamber, which is his private area, sort of an outdoor garden, and that's where he would have relieved himself in private. He's in the cooling chamber, this, this uh, outdoor area that's, that's, that's private to him. And Ehud goes up to him to pay tribute, reaches down onto his thigh, pulls out this knife, and jams it into this very fat king's stomach. And he dies on the spot. And he dies, and he's so fat. This is the part that the youth pastor part of me loves. He's so fat that, that the, 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 his belly rolls over top of it, and it just he doesn't even pull the sword out. So there's really even no evidence that a crime was committed because they don't see a weapon. And he climbs over the wall, and because he was in this private chamber with the king, he has a lot of time to escape. Now, side note, the humorous part of this story is because his servants are outside the door and they want to know what's taking so long, and they're out there, and it says that they waited to the point of embarrassment. And they're like, geez, how long is he going to be in there? Holy cow, he's been there for like an hour. My goodness, right? And when they finally get up the nerve, because you do not want to bust in on the king while he's doing his business too early, right? He's not answering their questions, so when they finally work up the nerve to walk into his private chamber, when they already make the assumption that that's what he's doing, they find him dead. Not only that, because they had to wait so long, or they chose to wait so long, Ehud had plenty of time to escape. And when he escapes, he gets the army together, and they just completely get their land back. Now, when I was a youth pastor and I told that story, there were some colorful bits that I focused in on that I'm not focusing in on this morning. Here's the point of that, why I think we have this here. One, 
it might be like, why, why did they go in such explicit detail? That's a question I had. Why did they go into such explicit detail about a guy using the bathroom and tell me almost nothing about a guy who killed 600 Philistines with a stick? I'd rather know more about him than the fat king that died on the toilet. But this is why we have it. He was a left-handed man. Culture held him of, of no significance, right? And here's, the, here's something that just jumps out at me. God does not always work by what we call normal methods. God does not always uh, accomplish His will by ways that we would pick. God actually calls left-handed people to complete right-handed tasks for His glory. God uses people in the margins of society to show that salvation is from Him. It's not from us. Why did He allow a left-handed, crippled man the ability to get an audience with the king and then become a wise judge who led His people into war And at the end of that, it says, verse 29, they killed at that time 10,000 of the Moabites. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest this time for 80 years, all led by Ehud, a very unlikely source of leadership. Meg read it this morning whenever we were doing worship, but the First Corinthians passage, verses 1, 26, uh, chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, it talks about how God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And when we know that, it should really shatter our idols. It should really destroy our, our idolatry. See, in in idolatry, we can say, if I do X, then Y will be my result. In idolatry, we say, if I feed this idol this thing, then I will get what I want. And an idol doesn't have to be something you carved out of wood like it was for these people. An idol is anything, catch this, an idol is anything that gets your time, affection, trust, faith, any part of you more than God. And if that is the definition, and it is, then we are all idolatrous people. That is the hard truth. Because when I see the Israelites run and come back, run and come back, run and come back, run and come back, I see myself way too much in the story. And it doesn't feel good, and it doesn't taste good, and it doesn't doesn't make me feel good as faithful as I like to convince myself that I am holistically. The bad thing about idolatry is that if we can say that if I do X, then Y will be my result, then we transfer that mindset over to how we view God. And we say that if I, if I do X, then God will save me. If I do X, then God will bless me. And then we go so far as to believe, well, well God wants me to be happy. God desires me to be healthy and happy, and that's His ultimate purpose for my life. 
And then we convince ourselves that if we don't have the health or the wealth or any of the other things this earth can hand us at a level that we thought we should, we convince ourselves Satan allows us to believe a lie that God doesn't love us. Because if he did, you'd have better health. If he did, you'd have more things. If he did, you'd have more time afforded to you. If he did that thing that you've wanted forever, you'd have it. Listen, we don't do deals with God because we don't have anything to offer him. Idolatry is all about making a deal with the thing you're trying to worship. You're trying to work out a deal with the idol. And we don't make deals with God because we don't have anything to offer him. The only thing we have to offer him is garbage. Our sin, our failure, our mistakes. That's what we have to offer God. Because anything good in us came, to him, came from him in the first place. If you are talented, it's not because you went to school to learn that talent or to bolster it. It's not because you're naturally gifted or you paid a lot of money to get people to teach you how to do it better. It's because God gave it to you. Whatever that talent may be, you see, anything good in us, it came from God in the first place. So when we have a proper understanding of who God is, we have a proper understanding of the gospel, we realize that truth. That we are all left-handers. No offense to you actual left-handers. I'm using the quotations around that. He uses us all people who, who are unlikely heroes in this whole mess called life. He indwells us with his spirit. And then he sends us out on task to do things because he offers us everything at a cost he paid through the life of his son. So I don't want to be like the Israelite people constant tension between calling out to God for help and then forgetting Him. You're going to see it again and again, and just like Peter challenges us, we're not going to stop talking about it. We're not going to stop going down to the lake week after week from this pulpit and chip through the ice to make sure we're still getting the water. That's what the pulpit exists for. That's what community groups exist for. That's what accountability exists for. If you're not taking advantage of those things, your ice is growing rapidly. And you will get a hardened heart, and you will forsake God. Not because you're not plugged into church-based programs. You're not running out to God on a regular basis. If we are not people in the Word, if we're not people gathering together, if we're not people learning from each other, if those aren't tenets of how we live our lives because we want to know God more, because we love Him, want to respond to Him through that. We are the ones that are on a fast track to rebellion. People who don't know God are living in rebellion and they don't know it. People who claim to know God are living in rebellion and they don't care. Until you're living under 8, 18, sometimes more than that, years of tyrannical leadership people who don't love you and people who are supposed to give you what God already promised you could have and you're seeking it in sources that aren't him. That's what the Israelite people did. And he brought up an unlikely hero. He brought up Othniel. He brought up Ehud and led the people back into prosperity. They couldn't fabricate their victory. They couldn't fabricate 
their revival. But God appointed a redeemer at the right time, and he gave them redemption from their mess. We get to live in the benefit of having an ultimate redeemer, Jesus, come and redeem us from our mess. An unlikely hero grew up in an unlikely village that grew up to do unlikely things in the society he lived in. And we get to live in the benefit of his sacrifice. God, thank you for leading us to the point where we can see your truth and your reality. We know who you are. We know what you have done. We don't want to respond to you out of a a compulsion to get something from you. We don't want to try to make deals with the Holy God. We don't have anything to offer you. But God, we do lay our lives down for your sake. They're yours to begin with. We're just stewarding them. I pray that we can have an active recognition of you being our king, an active recognition that rebellion doesn't lead us to life, an active recognition that you have, you have called each one of us to step into situations that we are not personally qualified for, but with your spirit inside of us, we are, and we get to do and be and be a part of great things for your name and for your renown, just like Ehud was. God, may we learn from the message in your word. May we be a people who are not just appreciative of your work, but transformed by it. May we pray collectively that you be the all-sufficient being in our lives, Lord, not just us personally, but as we gather, as we call ourselves the church. May you be all to us.